Please be seated. Earlier this summer when we were putting the schedule together for our summer series, I asked myself, considering the theme of Vacation Bible School, what, uh, what psalm would be best to go with this week? While there could have been several, the first one coming to my mind was Psalm 8, and so I invite you to turn there with me this morning as we continue our theme of the week, looking at the glory of God in his creation. Those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, uh, during the summer it's a fairly common practice for us to just work our way through the Psalms and let the Psalms speak to us. As uh, one commentator has, has noted, and I've, I've said probably a few times recently, is that while all Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. In other words, they reflect an attitude and experience that any of us can have. It gives words to our experience uh, as well as guiding us in the way that we can pray. It enables us to see God in a unique way, from his creation, from his word, as well as in our own experience. This morning, we come to this uh, Psalm, Psalm 8. Let me pray, and then we will move into our message. Holy God, we do come this morning, and we do thank you for your presence in this place, and in any place where we go. For we can't hide from you, we can't run from you, and even at times when we feel that you may be far off, you are always present, always conscious, and always caring. So Lord, we pray even now that as we consider your word, uh, that we would be comforted by your care, reminded of what you are like, and so that our understanding of you, our awe of you, might increase and thereby the worship that we have would flow from our hearts and our attentiveness to your word would not be something that we do because we must but because we recognize that you speak by your spirit through your word i pray you would speak to us even now that you would use this word to shape our thinking uh, and our doing but more than all may we see your glory as it is revealed through the eyes of this writer. We, we pr pray this uh, in the name of Jesus with great confidence that your word always bears fruit. Bear fruit in us today, we pray. Amen. There's a scientist by the name of Charles Misner who was apparently a, a specialist in general relativity theory, which sounds quite impressive to me. He was a colleague of Albert Einstein as well. And, and Misner... Uh, has this to say about his own understanding of creation and then Albert Einstein's view of, of, of preaching in the church uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s. Here's what Misner says. I do see a design in the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted in fact, I believe that's why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as basically a, a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. 
My guess is that he simply felt that the religions he'd run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. While that is a, quite a, an indictment, I suspect that there is a, 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 there's a lot of truth to that. And it is quite a daunting thing now to then speak, try to speak about God and his creation uh, immediately after that. Because there's no question, based on what little I really know, as much as there is to know, that I'm going to fall into Einstein's category as blaspheming by belittling God, not by my desire, but just by what I do know. But what I do know, and what God's word reveals, is incredibly awesome. The writer of Psalm 8, David, who was the king, I think that he would have been a kindred spirit with Einstein here, that he wouldn't have fallen into the blaspheming, although I don't know how much that he did know. What we do know is that he was awed by what God had made and by the humanity that God had created after his own image, and he was therefore in awe and in wonder and wowed with wonder at the God who has made everything. And as we look into this particular passage, what we really see here is, is a man who is wowed with wonder that leads him into worship. Not worship as an instruction what we're doing formally today, but worship that just kind of flows. It is the natural response of beholding the glory of God as it's revealed in what God has made. And in Psalm 8, invites us to wonder together about three things. One is the wonder of God in creation. And then there is the wonder of God in the dignity of humanity. And then we're also going to see the wonder of God in the power of the gospel, all of which are either directly stated or implied in what David writes here. So let's go to this psalm together now. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And as we see this, what radiates out of this page from the very beginning is the wonder of God in creation. Because the psalmist is clearly standing in wonder. It's easy to imagine him perhaps penning this at night out on a balcony. He was a king after all, so he had plenty of places to go and looking up into the stars. Or perhaps it was a memory of a time that just the expanse of, of the desert. Maybe it was looking into the glistening of the sun off of the rippling of the of the sea that was nearby when he had been. Uh, but here's somebody who has clearly been captivated by creation, and he's bringing that to recollection because he's pondering and saying, how majestic is your name when he's thinking about this God who's created everything? And I think it's significant that he asks the question, how majestic? He doesn't simply say, God, your name is majestic, a name representing all that God is. 
as if that God had reached some level and he was now recognizing God had, had reached that level. He, he recognized that God had reached a level, but God was so much greater that he's not acknowledging God. He is still perplexed. How majestic. Not just majestic. He's, he's trying to drink it all in. He understands and yet he doesn't comprehend because God is incomprehensible even though he reveals his glory through the beauty, the radiance of the things that he has made. And throughout the psalm, we see creation described. In verse 3, we see the heavens, the moon, and the stars. In verse 5, he talks about angels that are part of his creation. Verses 7 and 8, he talks about different animals. And God is seen as the artist, the engineer, and the director of every one of these things. So when we come to Psalm 8, what we see here is the story the story that's told all throughout the scriptures, but the story of God who created everything from nothing. Those of you who are waiting for the Latin, that's ex nihilo. Take that. This is Kara here. She likes the, always likes my Latin for references. God made everything from nothing, meaning he didn't take the ingredients and make things. There was nothing. He, he, he truly made from scratch everything that is there. And he did it by speaking into existence. Think about that for just a moment. Now sometimes the scriptures will talk about the, the work of his hands and his fingers and it's metaphorical because God is a spirit. He has no body. But from the very beginning we're told that the, the, the actual way is God wanted it. He spoke and that created everything. And he did this out of his own goodness, his own creativity, his own artistry and his own design for his own joy and enjoyment. He wanted it, he made it, and he said it is good. He was delighted in it and we are the beneficiaries of it. We stand here today in the presence of the God who put every star where he wanted it to be, who put the sun exactly where he knew it was to be, and he put everything in its place. And so we see the panoply of things around us, the expanse and, and the greatness of all these created. And then some of you who are more scientifically oriented have some understanding of the minute detail that, re that represents the complexity and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that for me is mind-boggling. Some of you are familiar with the story of George Washington Carver who was uh, an instructor at Tuskegee Institute, who was a godly man, incredible intellect, and incredibly curious. And so, as legend says, he prayed to God, give me the wisdom of the universe. And essentially the Lord said, George, that's a little too ambitious for you. He said, okay, well then give me the wisdom of earth. God essentially told him, I think you're barking up the wrong tree still a little bit. And so he kind of dialed it down until finally he said, okay, give me understanding of the peanut. And apparently the Lord says, okay. And George Washington Carver came up with over 300 uses for the peanuts. Who would have thought that was even possible that there would be 300? Even after he's, a, even after he's come up with 300 plus uses, I can't imagine 300 uses for a peanut. And yet, in the majesty of God in giving us the simplest of crops, there are 300 plus things that can be used, whether it's to eat or oils or 
read George Washington Carver's biography um, and, so, and figure out the rest for yourself on that. I, I, I stand amazed. Last year, and I think I, I told this uh, story sometime last year in a, in a different message, a friend of mine had mentioned that he had watched the, the B movie. If you haven't seen that, you need to see it. If you're an adult who's just wanting to kind of not use your mind, but go out of your mind watching something from children, I highly recommend the B movie. And so, but the B movie is, is narrated by Jerry Seinfeld, and he's the main character, and it's an animated film. And basically the plot is this, is that the bees are ticked off that humans have taken all of their honey. And then they take credit for creating the honey, and then they put their labels on all the bottles when the bees do all the work. And so what Seinfeld's bee does is he, has, uh, he, he takes uh, humans to court, and he wins. And then all the bees go on vacation. And with all the bees gone, all the vegetation dies. I won't go any further than that. I don't want to spoil the movie for you because I, I want you all to go out. I don't know if it's on Netflix. Go find the movie and, and watch the movie. But my friend who had watched the movie, he was curious. And so he went and did some research because he just kind of wondered whether was this true. What would actually happen if all the bees were gone? And so he did, he did the research, wondering if this child, the children's film was true wondering if everything would die if bees disappeared. And here's what he found. The USDA estimates that honeybees do between 11 and 16 billion dollars of work for American farmers each year. If bees were no longer around, the cost would be absorbed by you, me, by the consumers. This would result in spike in prices with an economic effect to price fresh fruit and vegetables out of reach for the working poor, who already consume less of these than their wealthier neighbors. And here's the timeline of what he called the bee-pocalypse. Within three months of the last bee disappearing, producers would see record low harvests. Three months. Grocers would have to explain why products such as almond butter had tripled in price. Within six months, most farmers would have to convert their fields to wheat, which would still be uh, around because it's pollinated by the wind, and you who are gluten-free would be up a creek. Um, by the end of the first year, we would all have a bland, boring diet. Everything bees pollinate would die off. So from this tiny insect, which as a kid, I spent my summers trying to swat with wiffle ball bats. We see a significant part of our economy rests. We see in this little bitty thing the power of God at work because so much rests even in this little thing that we try to avoid most of the summer and especially in the September. It's just as amazing. And there are an incredible number of stories about the complexity and the beauty of things that God has made. And Psalm 8 is inviting us to become like kids again. To explore and to be awed as we ponder God's creation and then to stand in awe and wonder at the God who created everything.
man named Lord William Kelvin, who was noted for his theoretical work on thermodynamics, said this, if you study science deep enough and long enough, it will force you to believe in God. And the psalmist is in awe here. We see that radiating through this psalm, which is one of the things that makes it a favorite of many, many people. And certainly pertinent for us this week. This is what our children have been celebrating and learning all week, is the majesty, the glory of God. How majestic is God to begin to ask that question as they explore God's world. But it's not just for kids. But the psalmist then, I don't want to say moves on, but you can see a shift in his thinking. He begins his thinking of God, and he's just awed by God from the beginning, and the creation is where he begins. What he knew of creation, he was awed by because he knew that it was created by God. And then his thoughts started turning to you and to me, to himself. And, and we see the words that he speaks in verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, and then in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you should care for him? And so while we've already seen and considered the, the glory of or the God as it's revealed, or the wonder of God as it's revealed in creation, now the psalmist turns his attention to the wonder of God and the dignity of humanity. And we see a man who is... Is just he's considering his, his creator and, and the creation. And he's amazed that the God who did this even knows that we're even here. I mean, he knows that he made us. He knows that there's people. He can see them. Um, sometimes it's easy to imagine that he must see us the same way we see people when we're, you know, coming in for a landing with an airplane. Everything just kind of seems. But God is engaged and intimately involved. And that's what he's saying. It's, he's amazed that God is aware. And then not just aware, but that he, that he cares for us. And he's overwhelmed. And I hope you see how important it is to remember the reality, this reality, the reality that God not only is aware of you, but that he, he cares for you. Because we, we see it more clearly, maybe when we ask it, in, in a question, kind of the opposite direction. What happens when we are not aware that God is aware of you and that he cares for you? What happens when that truth slips from our consciousness? What happens when that reality loses its luster in our hearts? Well, it manifests itself in a couple of ways. One is depression. Because we seem and feel hopeless, sometimes worthless. Because we're not connected to the very thing, the very one who gives us purpose, who gives us dignity in the first place. Another very common thing that happens is that we go looking for it in other places. So the reality is, if most of us are honest, we would acknowledge that we have spent a large part of our lives, and maybe still a large part of our life, posturing ourselves for our relationships. 
We long for affirmation and for approval. If we're not conscious of that coming from God, we need that approval from everyone who is around us. And we want people to be mindful of us, even the most uh, introverted and, and shy. We don't want to necessarily be the center of attention, but we want people to know we're there and to, and to you know, have some sense of value for us. And when we don't get it, it's, it's very frustrating and it's even, even disheartening. And every single day, we go through a battle like that, a war that's raging within us for acceptance and for approval. And while it's easy to assume that that's something that kids kind of grow into and it hits its peak in middle school or maybe high school, the reality is the truth, it doesn't go away when we get older. I still desperately long for approval. I want it from you. I want it from people that I meet. I want it from the world that's around. I just, it just, it's just as the reality. And I desperately long for that, and all the more when I'm not conscious of the fact that God has already given me all the approval that I need. And if I'm not mindful of God's approval, and if I'm not mindful of the reality of my desperate need for approval, and therefore I, 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 I seek it from other, other sources, it's crippling for my soul. Because it's incredibly dangerous for me when my identity and my worth is not rooted in God's mindfulness and care, but in what other people may or may not see or say about me. Psalm 8 reminds me, and I hope it reminds you, that we find our identity, we find our dignity, our worth in the approval of God and in the fact that the God who created us cares for us. We see all the, this big world, and when we stand by the ocean or stand in certain places and we feel so insignificant, we would feel exactly like the psalmist. With everything out there, what is man and, and, and what am I? And yet, God made you. And he said, not it's good, but you are very good because you are made after his image, and that is what gives you the dignity in the first place is that God made you out of all creation after his own image, and we've lost sight of that. It's what puts humanity above everything else in creation, and culturally that is just a, not a nice thing to say. And, and my own excuse on this is, hey, I didn't say it, God said it. Um, but that's a reality. God says, you, every one of you, whether you're here as a believer or you're just here, you're made after God's image, therefore you have dignity because God says so. He is aware. He is mindful of you. And for those that he calls to himself, you have the assurance that he cares for you. And he has a purpose for you. Because in the psalmist talks about different things here. And, and in the passage here, he talks about, you know, you've made him a little lower, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. In other words, he's talking about the creation order, the creation mandate that goes back to the book of Genesis, the purpose to create the general framework that we are created to work to do things as custodians of the creation in order to honor God and bless everybody, everything that is here on the earth. There is, there is purpose. And if you are somebody who thinks that, well, I don't have any skills, there's nothing that I can do, you know, I'm glad God cares for me, here's one of the things that you need to see. He's not just talking about adults. At the very beginning in verse 2, he says this, this thing that for a long time kind of somewhat baffled me, 
out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still my enemy and the avenger. And I've read that for years, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I would read it, and I would rejoice, and then I would think, what in the world does that mean? Now, maybe I'm the only one. Until recently, I saw a commentator who talked about that thing, and he just says this, says, look, God is demonstrating his own glory in the dignity of humanity, who he's made after his own creation, that he's given him a purpose, and he's the one that's so much in control, you have so much reason to rest in him. He, his purposes is that there are those who oppose him and his purposes, and instead of raising up the biggest, strongest, meanest, and ugliest army that he can, he says, this army that's coming against you, you know what? I'm going to send the kids in. I'm going to send the infants in. And, and they're going to cry praises to me, and they can't even conquer you. know, They'll conquer you. You can't conquer them. God uses his people. No matter how competent you may think you are or incompetent that you may feel you are, we stand amazed when we consider the God who's made everything. is conscious of you, cares for you. He gives you the dignity just by having made you he gives you purpose. He gives you, he equips you. Every one of you. And so we see the wonder of God in the dignity of humanity. But one of the things that he says here that is important, in some ways I would say it's even central to what he's saying, because it is the work of God demonstrated in its greatest glory we see reflected here in verse 5. It's related to the glory of God and the dignity of man. Let me just read it before I label it. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what David is talking about there is we are created, and so that part people seem to Yet, at least people in churches. And we are made a little lower than heavenly beings, and most of us sort of, at least intuitively or instinctively, understand that. In our culture, we theologically, it's usually awful, but we acknowledge uh, angels are above us, and we say, like, oh, he or she is an angel, as if to elevate them above other, other people. But then we go askew from there, because then we start believing things like every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, and... And when we go to heaven, we're going to get our own wings and fly around. And um, just wonderful movies and songs that just really corrupt our understanding of things. But at least for my point this morning, we, we know that where we are created is a little lower than the heavenly beings. We understand that. But what we have a difficult time is understanding is the second part of this. But then you crown them with glory and honor. Well, what exactly does that mean? I mean, are the angels crowned with glory and honor? And the answer is no. But humanity is. God's people are. How does that happen? What we see here is not only the glory of God in creation, but the glory of God in the dignity of humanity. We see the glory, the wonder of God in the power of the gospel have your Bibles open and you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. After I start reading this, you might 
recognize some familiar words. The writer of Hebrews, taking from Psalm 8, helps us to understand Psalm 8, verse 5, about crowning him with glory and honor. I'll begin in verse 5 for the context. Hebrew 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that, that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, of the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Well, back to the writer of Hebrews. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, when he became like us. crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews helps us with clarity to understand what the psalmist, what David understood. And it is the power of the gospel that is at work taking all of us who have dignity because we're created after the image of God and yet through the work of Jesus Christ and not stated here but elsewhere in scripture that we appropriate by believing in what Jesus did here by becoming lower than the angels for a time and then becoming crowned and that happened because he went to the grave he rose again, he ascended back to heaven where he is now rightly again recognized as the king. But he did that for a purpose and he did that with effect. And the purpose was to redeem a people, to belong to him. And those that he redeems, those that God cares for in a very intimate way, not only become his people, but we are told that we become joint heirs with Christ. In other words, we are in him, he is in us, we reign with him, is what the scriptures teach. The power of the gospel that is implied here is the greatest revelation of the fullness of the glory of God. The psalmist has a pattern, he's talking about the creation, which is awesome. And then shows humanity and says, the natural instinct is to think, who are we that the God who made all this would know anything about us? But he does. And then he says, not only does he know us and he care for us, but through declaring the ultimate end for all who are in Christ, he's taking us and reminding us of what Christ did in order to make that happen, that God's glory is revealed in redeeming a people who were created lower than the angels but will reign with Christ even over the angels themselves. A.W. Tozer was, once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Psalm 8 is not so much instruction but an invitation to deepen and to expand our view of God through exploring and enjoying God's creation and humanity and considering the majesty of God that is reflected in them and then standing it all at the love of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ 
the power of the gospel to take we who were dead in sin and not only make us alive again, washing the slate of our sin away, crediting us as being like Christ, but then one day elevating us that we will be with him reigning. Those are pretty heavy subjects. And yet, even a child can ponder them and then their thoughts of God become bigger. And if Tozer is right, and I believe he is, if the most important thing about us is what we think of God, then here's what you need to do. Go take a walk. I was going to say go take a hike, but you might take that the wrong way. Um, but um, take a dip in the ocean. Go out tonight with or without, a t- I don't know if it's clear. If it's not clear, then ruins my illustration, but go out and gaze at the stars. Be awed by God and then realize that as much as he put into that which he spoke into existence, you are even more precious. And if you are now awed by that God and recognize that his greatest gift is, is Jesus given to you and you're believing in him, then you have reason to have affirmation because that gift is not something you cultivated yourself. It came from God because he cares. And for all who that have that gift, the future is incredibly bright because you will reign with Jesus because all who believe in him are in him. What we see in Psalm 8 is a person who is wowed in wonder and who is caught up in worship, not so much what we're doing, not to be an example to us, but to be an invitation. It's an invitation to experience childlike wonder, to be affirmed, to find satisfaction in our souls. And who wouldn't want that? Father, as we consider these words that are familiar to many, and yet so familiar that we may not see, I pray that you would grant us the gift of experiencing what David experienced. Not the mastering of life, but the awe of wonder of what you have made to recognize that it is a radiance of your glory and to have our minds blown even as we are drawn into your presence. Comfort us even as you guide us. Bless us as you grant us faith to believe, to be set free, to be affirmed, to have joy. This I pray in accordance with your promise and in the name of Jesus.